Father, thank you for the rich text we have before us today, pointing us to our glorious Savior. No sermon could do this text justice. Would you please help us, Holy Spirit, show us the unique and supreme worthiness of Christ Convince our minds and our hearts that nothing compares to him, that everything depends on him. Do this so that we would be motivated to worship and serve him and be spared from wasting our lives on worshiping lesser things. We worship what we believe is worthy. Help us see that there is no rival to Jesus. And then move us to sing and worship to him. Not because that's what we do at church and it would be strange if we didn't. Not even because we enjoy it. But because after beholding his worthiness, we can't keep silent. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. That's on page 1030 of the Bible that's under the seat in front of you. Feel free to use that if you need. And if you don't own your own copy of the Bible, we hope you'll keep that one and take it home with you today. Again, the page number of our text is 1030, Revelation chapter 5. What if there were no Jesus? What if there were no Jesus? That is the distressing prospect that the Apostle John contemplates for a few agonizing moments at the beginning of our text. Do you see that in verse 4 of chapter 5? A mighty angel has just asked if anyone is worthy to open the scroll in God's hand and a search of the whole created universe has been made and no one worthy is found. And so in despair, John begins to weep loudly. But before we get into the vision of Revelation 5, uh, let's take a step back so that we can grasp the monumental significance of this occasion that is being signified John. You see, this moment had been anticipated ever since the beginning of human history. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam had the opportunity to crush the serpent's rebellion, he chose instead to join it. He failed to offer God perfect obedience. And so instead of enjoying everlasting life with God and as the representative head of humanity, bringing all his posterity into that state of eternal blessedness and glory and rest, He was barred from eating of the tree of life and with his wife made to descend from the garden of God 
and all his descendants received his guilt and stand condemned before a holy God. That is how the story of humanity began, with a tragic descent. But all hope was not lost because God made them a gracious promise that he would send a champion, one of their descendants, a second Adam, who would overcome Satan's temptations and bring him down in defeat and humiliation and then, on the basis of perfect obedience, ascend back into the presence of God. And if fallen man was ever going to enjoy eternal life in God's presence again, it could only come through this worthy champion. And so the ancient songs of God's people express this longing for the coming champion. We find in those songs foreshadowing of the day when he finally ascends the hill of God and the heavenly gates are opened for him and he enters and receives blessings from the Lord and confers them on his people. Just listen to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So do you grasp the significance for redemptive history of this occasion being signified to John in Revelation 5. The destiny of God's people depends entirely on one who is worthy ascending to the Father. Every hope hangs on him. Without him, none of the Bible's promises come true and nothing sad comes untrue. Without him, there is no forgiveness of sin, no end of evil, no resurrection, no heaven, no new heaven and earth. So you understand John's tears, don't you? And you see how desperately we need Jesus. Well, with that understanding of the significance of this moment, let's now read the full text of Revelation 5. Please follow along in your copy of God's most precious and holy word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as slain with seven horns and seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll consider this text in two halves. First, the coronation of the king in verses 1 through 7. And second, the celebration of redemption in verses 8 through 14. So first, the coronation of the king. In this vision, John sees God the Father seated on the throne of heaven, and in his right hand, he holds a scroll. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. He has no right hand, but that language of the right hand of God signifies his power and authority. And in the Bible, to be positioned at the right hand of God is to be in the place of highest rank, highest authority. Like someone saying someone is in the Oval Office. Right? To be at the right hand of God is to be as close as you can possibly be to the throne. It's to hold the highest office. Now it's essential that we understand what is signified by this scroll. And if you continue reading in the following chapters of Revelation, you'll find that as this scroll is opened, it contains God's plans for judgment and redemption. We're told it has writing on the inside and outside signifying that these plans are comprehensive. God has planned every detail. He's left nothing to chance. So this scroll contains the divine decree concerning everything that will happen during the church age and into the new creation. Things like Christ protecting his persecuted people and judging their persecutors. All of God's good purposes for redemptive history are in this scroll. But we're told something else about the scroll. It's sealed, completely and entirely sealed, as the number seven indicates. 
Because of the season we're in, I, I picture the locks on Ebenezer Scrooge's door, going all the way down the door. This scroll is shut tight. Now, on one hand, that's a good thing, because it means no one can alter these plans. No one can change them. But it also presents a problem, because if this scroll isn't opened, the plans of God won't be enacted. See, opening the scroll concerns not merely revealing the plans, but realizing the plans, carrying them out, executing them. So this mighty angel is asking, who is worthy to ascend to the right hand of God, to that highest position of power and authority, and from that position to carry out all the purposes of God concerning judgment and salvation? Who is worthy of that? Is anyone worthy of that? That question thunders throughout the created universe and is met with silence when no one is found worthy. You see, this is not like modern stories like uh, the Marvel superhero Thor. Thor is the hero you probably remember who wields a, a mighty hammer and... Uh, no one else is worthy to lift the hammer, only him. Except if you keep watching the movies or read the comics, you find that lots of characters, uh, it turns out, are worthy to lift the hammer. Captain America can lift it. Uh, Vision can lift it. Thor's girlfriend can lift it. And I'm not making this up. At one point, a piece of the hammer splinters off and is discovered by a frog who turns out is worthy to lift that piece and become the mighty throg and has many adventures. So whether or not Thor is worthy doesn't really matter all that much in those stories. Someone always steps up and things always work out. But Revelation 5 is nothing like that. Nothing like that. Either Jesus is worthy or all hope is gone. This faithful apostle is not worthy to open the scroll. This mighty angel is not worthy to open the scroll. The living creatures and the elders aren't worthy to open the scroll. No one in all the created universe is worthy to do it. And so John weeps loudly because he understands that if no one is worthy, then all of God's glorious purposes will remain unrealized. God's people will not be redeemed. The wicked will not be judged. Every hope of every believer will fail. If you've read John's New Testament letters, do you remember what brought him joy? It was the faithfulness of the members of the congregations to which he ministered. His little children, he called them. His beloved. That brought him joy. I imagine in this moment of despair, however brief it was, his mind went to them. What would become of them? If the scroll remained sealed, if no one worthy could execute God's plans, those believers wouldn't be guarded through persecution. They would never know relief. They would never see justice served. They would never enjoy life in God's presence. What causes you to weep? 
Do the plans of God being carried out on the earth matter to you? Or have you stopped praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you more concerned about your bank accounts and college classes and sports teams? Are those the things that really matter to you right now? Why do you think this predicament was included in this vision? Why was it necessary to have this pause? Why didn't Christ just step forward immediately? Well, it was to make us feel the great need we have of Christ and to make us, to impress upon us the, the absolutely unique and unmatched worthiness he possesses. There is no one else like him. Only he is worthy for this task. Do you see Christ that way? As uniquely worthy, infinitely great, unrivaled in excellence and power? That is how you need to see him. Or you will worship something else, something unworthy, and you will waste your life in pursuit of it. But John's weeping does not last long. It's interrupted by an elder who tells him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The champion has arrived. Here he is at last. And he's announced as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These two titles come from the Old Testament. They describe the Messiah as a great king who overcomes his enemies and judges them. In Genesis 49, the patriarch Jacob blesses his sons. And he says to Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The prophecy of Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So this worthy champion is presented as a fierce warrior king. And as a human male, he is from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. Now, remember the song of Psalm 24, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The lion of the tribe of Judah fits that picture, doesn't it? But now, here comes a surprising twist, something we don't expect. John is told to behold a lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb. It's like watching the opening scene of The Lion King with that great music playing and all the animals arriving to behold the newborn lion prince, but then you look in Rafiki's hands and he's holding up a little lamb. You know, do you think anyone sang Psalm 24 and imagined those ancient doors being opened and a lamb walking through? I've never seen a lamb on any team's jersey before or any country's currency. 
It's just not an animal we associate with victory, like a bear or a tiger or an eagle. Well, this is what many failed to understand about the Messiah. They knew he would conquer, but they didn't understand how he would conquer. Under the Old Covenant, it was a a mystery, but it was also foreshadowed in their songs. Not only would he be free from any stain of sin, he would also endure suffering. Suffering so great, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be despised and mocked. He would be surrounded by his enemies who would pierce his hands and feet and gloat over him. He would even pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Death is the punishment for sinners, but it would fall on the one who is perfectly obedient. He would endure it in their place, and then he would be resurrected, and this is how the lion would conquer. As a lamb led to the slaughter, You see how the lamb is described as slain. In other words, with its throat cut, as would be done to a lamb that was sacrificed. This lamb had been slain, but now he is standing. He is dead no longer. Notice, and this is so important, notice that even though he is risen, he still bears those marks of his death. And do you realize what that signifies, brothers and sisters? Jesus has gone into heaven, but that doesn't mean he has forgotten about us on earth. He is our high priest interceding for us before the Father. Hebrews tells us, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is your high priest in heaven. He is familiar with your situation. He has been where you are, and he conquered. And he has not forgotten you. He has gone to heaven to present his blood before the Father, which pleads your full forgiveness. And the Father sees his wounds and hears his prayers every time for each particular instance of sin in your life. This brings to mind the wonderful words of Charles Wesley's hymn, which I would like to quote in full because it's just so good, but I'll limit myself to just two stanzas and ask you to just sing that song later this afternoon. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Christian, do you ever worry what your reception will be in heaven because you are not good enough or your faith is not strong enough? Do you worry that in the end you won't finally inherit the new heaven and earth? Hear this. Your acceptance before God is grounded in the cross The cross guarantees your inheritance. Christ is your confidence. 
Look to the lamb standing as slain and shake off those guilty fears. And consider this. It's so helpful. Christ's continuing work of intercession in heaven means that the Father knew you would continue to struggle with sin after your conversion. Do you realize that? He knew that. So how did Jesus, the Lion of Judah, conquer? He conquered through his death on the cross as the spotless, sacrificial Lamb of God in the place of sinners. That is how he conquered sin and Satan and death. What does that mean for us? Listen closely to the language of Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. Just listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And hear this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Did you hear it? Jesus has disarmed and humiliated Satan. How? Not on the battlefield, but on the cross. On the cross, he purchased forgiveness for all who look to him in faith. And that means Satan has been disarmed. The record of your sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Do you see what that means? If you are covered by the blood of Christ, Satan has lost his power to accuse you before the throne of God. He is disarmed. And not only that, he is humiliated. All the powers of evil thought that the cross was their moment of victory. But at the cross they lost. Jesus beat them. And now, especially at this moment of ascension to the right hand of God, everyone can see it. They're embarrassed by this. Do you remember those verses in Isaiah 14? That passage that says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now contextually those refer to the king of Babylon, but Christians understand them to also refer to the devil. He sought to ascend to the throne of heaven. That's what he wanted more than anything. To become like God, but that position now is occupied by Jesus. And the world does not lie under the power of Satan. The Father has installed his Son as Lord of all, investing him with all authority on heaven and earth. Most of you will probably not relate to the illustration I'm about to use, but I really love the image, and I think it will be clear enough to still be helpful. When I was a young kid, the most popular video game to have was GoldenEye for the Nintendo 64. 
in the game, you basically just run around different maps trying to find your opponents and shoot them. Uh, but just trust me, it was really cool, okay? <laughs> All my friends had this game. I did not. So whenever we played, uh, they would quickly beat me badly. And I would reappear somewhere on the map without a weapon, and I'd be left running around with nothing to face them with but my karate chop. I can still remember the sound of it. And it was, it was just the sound of desperation, and it was so pathetic. But it was all I could do. And it couldn't cause them any real harm. And that is a picture of Satan after the cross. He is still active. He's still roaming about, but he's disarmed, and he's humiliated. If you are in Christ, you don't belong to his kingdom anymore. He doesn't have power over you. Has the freedom and relief of that reality settled on your soul? This year, when you feel overwhelmed by personal tragedy, maybe you're feeling it already, or world affairs, remember Evil does not sit at the controls of history. Jesus does. And so everything will be okay in the end. Evil cannot ultimately harm you. And when the enemy whispers in the back of your mind, oh, you've gone too far this time, God will never forgive you now. You will never overcome that sin. You can speak back to those accusations. You can remind Satan of where Christ is. You could use the words of a song we sometimes sing here. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. As the lamb... The lion has conquered Satan, and you are forgiven. Notice what further description we get of this lamb. It has seven horns and seven eyes. It's not your typical lamb. Not the lamb you would pick out if you were choosing a pet. The seven horns signify his infinite power. The seven eyes, his exhaustive knowledge. So he is fully capable to execute God's plans for judgment and salvation. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from him. So when he judges, it's perfectly just because it's based on facts. He has seen everything. And do you recall in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation what Jesus says to each of the seven churches? He tells each of them, I know, I know what you are enduring. I know what to commend you for. I know what I have against you. I know what you're suffering. Jesus knows everything we discuss at Life at the Creek. He knows what the elders discuss in their meetings. He knows the requests you share in your community group. He knows every trial and pressure that this church will face. He knows it all. And what does he do? When he ascends to the right hand of God, he sends his spirit to support and strengthen his churches and to warn them. 
to empower his people to be witnesses throughout the world. This is such a great encouragement from our text for local church ministry and for world missions. And by the way, don't miss the full activity of the triune God in this text. Always, when you read the Bible, try to pay attention to which member of the Trinity does what so that you can be specific in your prayers and praise. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Redemption is a triune work. We worship a triune God. Well, notice also in verse 7 that the Lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When you read verse 7, you should be thinking, hold on, he did what? You do not just do that. One does not simply approach the throne of God and take the scroll from his right hand. Hear how the throne is described in Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. That reminds us of Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Remember that the people had to be warned not to touch the mountain so they didn't die? But this man walks right up to the flashing, rumbling throne of God. No mere man would dare do such a thing. And what does this mean that Christ has taken the scroll? Well, it means he has begun to rule. This is the moment he is invested with universal dominion. I believe this is the fulfillment of the vision of Daniel 7. Do you remember it? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father and been installed as king, invested with all authority. And the taking of the scroll signifies not merely that Jesus possesses all authority, but that he is exercising all authority. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he isn't sitting in a recliner, dozing off. Have you ever been working on something on your computer and your roommate or your spouse leaves to run some errands and when they come back, you're still sitting in the exact same spot and they say something like, hmm, right where I left you. Meaning, they think that because you haven't moved, you haven't accomplished anything. But little do they know how many political and theological arguments on Facebook you have settled from that position. They're not giving you enough credit. <laughs> well, we understand, don't we, that in the world, much of the most difficult work is accomplished by powerful leaders seated with their cabinets. Well, from his seat at the right hand of God, Jesus is directing the affairs of the world, carrying out every one of God's decrees, every detail. If you want to know what kinds of things he's doing, from the right hand of God, just read through the book of Acts, where Luke chronicles what Jesus continues to do and teach as the ascended Lord. Throughout Acts, Jesus is the actor. 
He sends the Spirit to empower the people. He adds to his church. He speaks to Paul on the Damascus Road. He opens Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul says. He's doing the same things today. Opening mouths to speak and hearts to pay attention. Some of you need to hear this message because you've lost confidence that the gospel can really advance among your friends and neighbors and that the church can really expand into the most difficult places of the world. You've lost confidence that you could ever overcome sin in your life. You've lost confidence that what you do actually matters for the kingdom. Dear Christian, Christ has ascended. He is exercising God's plans, so take heart. Pick up your sword and recommit yourself to fighting against sin in your life and spreading the good news of Jesus to all kinds of people everywhere. And some of you need to hear this message because you have never bowed before Jesus as Savior and King. You have never repented of your sins and come to him in faith. And so you need to hear the words of Psalm 2 where God says, I have set my king on my holy hill. He will have the entire world as his inheritance. One day he will judge all who rebel against him. Oh friend, won't you bow to the king today while he is showing you patience and mercy? If Christ is king and you are his enemy, you must bow while there's time. All who take refuge in him are promised blessing. You can leave this room today with your sins forgiven and your relationship with God restored. That's his promise to anyone who would bow before Christ in repentance and faith. Well, what is your response to this vision so far? The second half of the chapter shows us the response of heaven and all creation to the coronation of the king. And we'll move through this half much quicker. But it's a joyful response. Joyful worship. A celebration of his work and worth. It begins in verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here is where the Bible teaches that we all sit on clouds playing harps in heaven. Except not exactly. Uh, the harp in the ancient world was the instrument of joyful music. And so the modern equivalent of today might be the fiddle. They are tuned up and ready to sing a new song in celebration of the glorious deliverance the Lamb had accomplished. You see in the Bible, new songs aren't just modern songs as opposed to traditional songs. They are songs that celebrate a fresh act of deliverance. You can think of the song of Moses after God delivered his people through the Red Sea. Destroying Pharaoh's army. Scripture says that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It's a new song, celebrating a new deliverance. Or think of Deborah and Barak, after God had delivered his people from the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and Sisera, the commander of his army, 
who had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. They sang on that day, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord. Psalm 33 celebrates a military victory and encourages the people to give credit to the Lord in a new song. Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In Psalm 44, David celebrates a fresh experience of God's deliverance with a new song. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You see, there are many examples of new songs in Scripture. But this one, this one is the best and greatest new song that will ever be sung. This new song is a celebration of the victorious work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. This is the song of the new covenant. This is the song of redemption. Also notice how this moment when the Lamb takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father is an answer to the prayers of God's people. They had long called out to God to judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. And now their prayers are answered. Because the Lamb has conquered on the cross and ascended to his seat of authority. So judgment and deliverance are now certain. So be encouraged in your prayers. Persevere in your prayers. When you feel like they don't go any higher than the ceiling, see that they are carried into the very presence of the throne of God and the Lamb, where they are always heard and answered. Well, what is the content of this new song specifically? Why is he worthy? What has he done? What fresh work of deliverance has Christ accomplished? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So if you missed it in all the imagery, here it is in plain language. He is worthy to rule and be worshipped because he was slain as an atoning sacrifice. And two specific results of his death are included in this new song. He has ransomed his people and he has secured their destiny. To ransom someone is to purchase their freedom through costly means. God's people were slaves to sin and Christ freed them by means of his shed blood. He has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see that? This was the mission from the Father that he was given and he accomplished it. He shed his blood and paid the redemption price. Not of all people, but of all kinds of people not every tribe and language and people and nation, but people from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's a particular redemption and it's an effectual redemption. 
He has ransomed his people for God. He has set God's chosen people free from the guilt and condemnation of their sins, free from the dominion of sin over them. This song is not the language of a potential redemption, but of a fully effectual redemption. So they sing this new song because on the cross the Lamb accomplished salvation. Emmanuel saved his people from their sins. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. As one commentator put it, the price has been paid, the prisoners must be released. Think of the hope this gives world missions. What else could motivate missions to the world's hardest places? What else could see missionaries through the discouragement of laboring faithfully with very little to show for it? Accept this theology. Accept the certainty that God will save his people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Church, we can take the gospel everywhere. We can offer Christ to all people in all places and there will be a people who respond because Christ has purchased people. His blood is, it has a 100% success rate it covers, it saves everyone it covers. Christ will have his bride. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. So be encouraged as you contribute to the Lottie Moon offering to support missions and continue in 2024 to pray for and support and do missions. As your life begins to fill up with other things this year, don't forget the mission we've been given to make disciples of all nations. Freedom from the condemnation and power of sin isn't the only result of the Lamb's work. God's people are freed by his blood, but freed to do what? To be a kingdom and priests to God and reign on the earth. Christ's work of redemption has secured this destiny for his people. That was the original intention for Adam and Eve. They were made in the image of God to rule the earth on behalf of God until the whole earth was filled with his image bearers enjoying life in his glorious presence. Now this destiny is finally secured by Christ. God's people worship and serve him now across the earth and one day they will cover a new earth in new bodies and reign with him in a promised land that extends over the whole entire earth. That is what we have been ransomed to do and Christ has secured that destiny for us. Well, we have to bring this to a close. In the final two songs of this chapter, the worship of heaven crescendos and expands. The living creatures and elders are joined by the voice of many angels, thousands of thousands, singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then they are joined by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all together singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So notice that all creation is worshiping both God and Christ. God and Christ are glorified together. Christ is not the Father, but he is equal with the Father. Christ is fully God. 
And the four living creatures confirm that such worship of Christ is fitting and proper, adding their amen. All of heaven shouts out the sevenfold description of praise to the Lamb, signifying that he is worthy of nothing less than perfect, complete worship, because he is completely worthy. He is worthy of all the power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing you could ascribe to him. You could never think too highly of Christ. Do you see that Christ is at the center of the entire universe? He is the focus of heaven. Is he your focus? Is he an accessory to your life or the center of your life? We get so easily distracted. We forget him. We push him to the sideline. And that's one reason we need one another in the local church to point each other back to who is truly in the center of everything. When we forget or ignore how worthy Christ is, we begin to center our lives around other things and that is dangerous. If you spend your days running after anything other than Christ, if you pour your attention and your focus into anything else, your life will be wasted because nothing else is worthy. But if you spend every day of your life in service of Christ, living for him, no matter what sacrifices that requires, what sufferings you endure, it will all be worth it. None of it will have been a waste because he is worthy. So brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves again to reminding one another of the worthiness of Christ. And let me say, if you, if you hear me using this language of wasting your life and you're in a stage of life where you look back and you think, I have wasted so much. Now, don't despair in that. There is grace for you. Repent. Turn to Christ and he will empower you to live the rest of your days serving him, glorifying him. But don't waste another day. So let's commit to reminding ourselves of Christ's worthiness. And one way we can do that is through singing together. You know, sometimes it's challenging to find ways to apply scripture, but other times you have just wonderful low-hanging fruit like we have here. How should we apply these verses? By singing together. Pattern your worship after this worship in heaven. Sing to Christ. Direct your songs to him and sing of Christ. Sing of his worth and his work with a loud voice if you're able. What if there were no Jesus? That would be a world too terrible to imagine. It would be a world without hope. But there is a Jesus. And because he conquered through the cross and ascended to the Father, there is great hope. All of God's good purposes will be realized because Christ is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. So let's pray and then praise him together with loud singing. Father, we give you glory for your sovereign plans for redemption and judgment. Christ, we give you honor as the only one worthy to execute those plans because of your work on the cross. We praise you as the ascended king Holy Spirit, help us to respond with true worship from our hearts to these amazing realities. 
and live lives centered on the worthy lion and the lamb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.